Hello, dear patrons. We're back. What you're about to hear is George speaking to Stephen Simon about the death of the left, and that'll be followed, of course, by our after party. Catch you then. So I guess on, on this, it might be a fairly sort of minor point of how you would describe this sort of approach. But given everything that we've talked about in terms of the, I guess, the trajectory of the left, the, the death, and the current kind of fragmentation and kind of class composition, is this is this going to be a left project? I mean, is this going to be, a, a, you know, it, does it require essentially a break and an embracing of like, well, kind of not left wing anymore? It's okay to be, to be, I don't want to say to be like red brown and or like whatever, but it, is it okay to be conservative? Is it okay to be right wing if that's the um, you know the Rubicon that the the ex leftist has to cross to to kind of start <clears throat> moving towards the kind of cultural narratives you were talking about, Steve, or the kind of economic control that you know you both spoke about as central to the project that previously constituted the left. No, it's not a left project. Uh, Quaron's tremendous movie, Children of Men, finished with the refugees from this this dishevelled society of, of, of dead politics and, and, and pointless arguments, arguments that really should have ended um, a long time ago. Um, on a boat, I think the young woman was pregnant, wasn't she? She's going to have a baby. It's a great, it's a great yeah. film, yeah. And she's on a boat with this, this young, cynical young man who, who might just one time, just in, in, in any time, rediscover his idealism. And a boat appears. Do you remember what was written on the boat? No. The human project. Hmm. It's not a leftist project. It's not a right project. It's a new project. We need to look at the world again. Well, ultimately, we are what we call ultra-realists. This was the movement we set up in social science, and this is the movement we hope will, will continue. We need to look at the world with no rose-tinted glasses on, look at it. What can we do? What can be done? And to begin again, if we call that project the left, why should we? I mean, it was just a, it was just a metaphor from the um, the assembly, of the French Revolution, wasn't it? You know, it was just a source of sat yeah. left hand side. It, it's it's a nonsense term. It doesn't really mean anything. Never has really meant anything. What we need to do is is look at the economy, look at culture, look at human beings. What do we want? What do we need? How do we get ourselves out of this mess and, and, and to begin again? We need to think very, very hard, a lot harder than the um, leftist intellectuals have done since since uh, 1968, certainly. So, no, I don't think it's a leftist project, but it's not a rightist project. It's a, it's a hmm. new project. It's a human project. Yeah, I, I agree. I think what I would add is, you know, the idea increasingly growing it seems to be that ordinary people are conservative because they're reacting to the changes that are inherent to the project of liberal multiculturalism and i think that's a bit of a red herring to be perfectly honest i think more many people are quite con- increasingly conservative in their voting decisions but i think what that's really rooted in a sense that the pace of cultural change has been so disconcerting and alienating and of course, most people feel as though they have absolutely zero control over what is being changed and the pace of the change and what's being turned into. And they feel kind of lost. And inevitably, in an atmosphere of that kind, 
you look backwards to, to find some form of stability. And again, I yeah. think this takes, the, takes us back to the point Steve raised earlier about, in some ways, it, it can be absolutely productive to kind of step backwards just to get a sense, get a foothold in order to make another step forwards. And I think we can talk about, you know, reintroducing the some of the things that people associate with the recent past. Forms of full employment, uh, you know, working public services that actually, you know, have some purpose, that do something. You know, a, 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 the dilapidated nature of urban centres now is extraordinary. You know, we can all we can go back to a time when these things actually functioned. Just to pause for breath and decide where we want to go next. And I think whether or not you say that is a, you know, reflective of growing conservatives, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. We need to take control of the narrative. Uh, and I guess I'm kind of more of a dogged leftist than Steve is, and I want to say that you know, the left is dead, and it pains me to say it, but I have to be honest. Hmm. Need it more than ever. This is the problem. This is the fundamental Hegelian problem. It, it it can't return, and yet it must. And this is the historical juncture that we face, I think, at the moment. And whether or not we can hmm. develop, not us, but whether a new generation of people committed to the common good can begin to take a step forward and attract attention and build the very the institutions that we once associate with the left rooted in the principles of the old left remains to be seen mm. but this is the fundamental issue before us i think i mean definitely very sympathetic to any hegelian kind of characterizations or constructions of of, of where we are now I, I guess just a couple of final questions i just wanted to pick up on a couple of I think that was almost a really nice way to end it. But I did have a couple of things I wanted to, to push you guys on. The themes maybe that have come through in quite a few of the recent episodes we've had in, uh, in on the podcast. And one of them is around freedom. So kind of this idea that, you know, maybe the left's understanding of freedom is one of the things that kind of sunk it essentially. But I think, you know, how would you respond to this kind of counter argument almost that this was this idea of freedom was something that Thatcherism really uh, successfully mobilized against the post-war order. And that maybe this is what, this is one approach to not reconstituting the left, but to a kind of political project that comes after that is a really strong focus on, on freedom on kind of, you know, if you have some readings of, of Marxism, that this is, you know, a philosophy of freedom, that this is, this is the central thing that you can mobilize people around. So it's, it's a question not of <clears throat> kind of this, not dismissing, but sort of, it's not a question of getting rid of that idea of, of, of freedom as central to the left or that sort of project, but rather embracing it and trying yeah. to to kind of re-articulate it, but very much claim, kind of claiming that space of freedom and saying, you know, if you like freedom, this is, you know, we you might be interested in our in our party sort sure. of thing. Sure. I, I think um, <clears throat> just briefly, I'll, I'll, I'll go first on that one. Sure, I think uh, Marx's notion of freedom was best expressed for me anyway in this idea of the dream of the whole man, or the whole person, as we now insist on saying, uh, who, who, what is it, works in the morning and has lunch and philosophizes in the evening and, 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 and um, has lunch. Does a bit of fishing in there as well. That sort of thing. It's yeah. not too different from the, the, the vision of Thoreau or, or Emerson, the, the, the liberal. So that was the liberal in, in, in Marx. 
Um, but I don't think that Marx, well, first of all, the labor theory of value doesn't fly. I'm not a Marxist. The, the labor theory of value doesn't fly. But I think his, his idea of freedom doesn't fly because that, that, that work that has to be done in the morning is, is unfree. All work is, it, it, it's, you know, something you have to do. And, and, and some, you might enjoy some of it. You might, some of it is not very enjoyable at all. Um, I cleaned out my daughter-in-law's sunny love system. Uh, I, don't, I, think it was, I don't think I was exercising freedom mm. at, 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 at that particular time. So I think his idea of freedom is flawed. We have to devote. I mean, that, that must be still a Hobbesian, you know. We, we must devote some. We must give some of our freedom up at, at, at some point and, and, and do what's necessary. The other way, it's got a crude notion of freedom. It's just this free spirit idea, which was taken on board by people like G. E. Moore and the Bloomsbury Group and the idea of Isadora Duncan and all the rest. There's this free spirit floating, but we can never be entirely free spirits. Because, I mean, I think the Socratic classical notion of freedom, which we've forgotten, we haven't answered the, the, any of those ancient questions. What is it? Is it freedom of desire? Is, are we not a slave to desire? Hume, David Hume asked that question. Are we not a slave to our desires? Did mm. our desires enslave us? And as does the consumer marketplace take advantage of that fact and, and actually shove a procession of what Arjun Apajurai called the, the velocity of fashion, the, 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 you know, this, this sort of social function of, of fashion? Is that freedom? Is it the neoliberal notion of freedom is essentially Randy and this idea of the, this entitled entrepreneur going out and, 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 and sort of like a Nietzsche and uh, Uber mention uh, uh, to, to um, you know, uh, forge the new world with, 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 his, with his bare hands and his, his mm. ideas and innovation. I mean, there's a lot of pressure there, I think, you know, and there's an awful lot of uh, to live up to. I can't see that being very free. What is freedom? What are we talking about? Or, of course, Orange Tawney said the freedom uh, for the pike is death to the minnow. Well, mm. freedom, who's freedom? Freedom to do what? Freedom from what? I just think we throw these words around and we don't understand them. We've never really come to a categorical denotative definition of freedom. We don't know what it means. The, yeah, I guess the maybe the, the sort of response to that would be that people recognise that the, the, the sort of freedom that is sold to them today is is not, there is something that's that's unsatisfying about it <clears throat> and therefore there's space to to kind of say well this is to, to to criticize the sort of freedom that we're we're offered today and present a present another one sure but it's freedom ever satisfying i, I retired and i was I'm free as a bird uh, i'm not i have no debt i mean that's that's the um you know that i know that's the final question you're asking i do want to answer the, yeah. uh, that question I, I have no debt and i hate it i want to be some use to someone I'm always ringing up my daughter-in-law, my son-in-law, saying, "Do you want anything to do today?" You know, is, is there you have to be I, careful. I, I, You'll end up having to to empty various again, and stuff. Yeah, well, I know. I'm, I, well, I have to do that at some point, and and I certainly will be that most most unfree morning of of whatever that week is. But but uh, do I want to be totally free? Do I want to float off into space? I'm, I'm going to talk about another movie again, Gravity. Do you remember that? You're floating off into space. What do you do when you float off into space? You just dissipate and you fall apart. To come back to Earth, to this beautiful planet, means being grounded. There's certain unfreedoms. There are certain duties. Oh, dear, I'm starting to sound like Aristotle. There's Aristotle's social functions and duties that, that we seem to feel happier performing those duties. I wanted to be the best father I could. 
I wasn't very, very free. <laughs> I'll tell you, mortgage debt was crippling. The kids were getting on my nerves. I, I wasn't free. I've mm. never been happier. Are we mm. happy when we're free? We don't know. We've never solved these questions. We've never answered them. We didn't even ask these questions. Freedom's great, and that's all there is to it. Well, you know... I think that um, I think we should revisit <laughs> the notion and work out what it is before we start to push that as as the ultimate telos of, of, of humanity. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add that I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that Thatcherism won by mobilising a conception of freedom. No. I think it won because mm-hmm. it, it promised people increased standards of living, more consumerism. And I think the, the corrosive element of Thatcherism is, of course, to be free from all obligations. You know, you can walk away from your community. You don't have to feel obliged to your neighbour, your your friends that you went to school with or anything like that. You can just pursue your own interests. And I think, you know, if the left, the left deals with freedom as an issue, not by re-articulating a vision of freedom or taking control of a, a narrative around freedom, it's rather to say that freedom is a secondary order concern. It, it's something that, it can, it's useful, but it's only useful if it takes us somewhere, if it gives us something. And I think, uh, you know, I'm talking about our social research, we've, which we've done a lot of, what we get is increasingly, I don't know if it's increasingly, but there is still a, a kind of rump of people who are absolutely concerned with the well-being, not just of themselves and their families, but broader social groups. And I think that's where we need to be heading. It, it Concern yourself not with your individual freedom. You will do better when we all do better. And, you know, if we if we can move forward as a class, as a community, then we will all benefit rather than the kind of shallow concerns is, you know, you'll you'll have a nicer car or, you know, you'll be able to travel the world or any of this stuff. But, yeah, I think a hmm. movement away from that kind of dogged concern with freedom, it doesn't mean anything when politicians say freedom. It's just an abstraction. Yeah, everyone should have loads of it. Let's give people that. It's a good thing. It's 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 it has no substance. It doesn't really mean anything. I think people increasingly just they're blasé about it. They're not concerned with it. Not attracted yeah. to it. It's Godo. Mm. We're waiting for Godo. It has no meaning. Well, I guess it's been the the, the kind of the dominant <clears throat> term of of you might say of, of a lot of political like life in the last. However long, so there's, you know, I think there's, there's, you could see how that could lead to this term being used for a lot of different and incompatible, uh, in in a number of different and incompatible ways. Sure. I guess just just to kind of wrap things up a little bit, there's a, so I guess one question that I had sort of reading the book is how to what extent the uh, the changes that you that we've talked about as well, like this morning is to what extent they're ideological or or their reflections of material changes and i think this is a very very difficult question to to answer but it's an important one because obviously it it sort of it determines what you think the the major barriers are um to to kind of this sort of project that we've sort of finished this discussion talking a little bit about so i guess to kind of maybe wrap it up then what i mean is is this a kind of ideological intellectual cultural problem or is that the first step or is it a you know which would be much more difficult to solve a material or social sociological kind of decomposition of class or like um hollowing out of political institutions i mean maybe it's a bit artificial to divide things this way but i did want to 
to kind of push you both a little bit just because yeah. obviously we've we've and in this discussion as well we've talked a lot about the the kind of the ideological failings of, of the left and I guess just to kind of bring that what's what are the material basis of, of these changes and you know what barriers do they mean that we have to overcome today yeah well I think by um continuing reproducing that dichotomy of, uh, of ideology in the material world, I think we reproduced the problem because I think the problem was their separation in the first place. And that separation was done in the late 18th century that our politics, which must con- contain some sort of ethical and, and, and visionary component and, and abstract ideas that we must uh, use to inspire people towards um, the interesting conference I attended with 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 yourself, George and Wolfgang Street and others. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm sorry, I, I, I did get a little cynical when I asked the question of you know of, of, of abstraction. We've talked about instant nationalism mm. and freedom and and peacefulness, but we never spoke about how any of these things could be brought into being. How they're, they're in institute, but politics and the visions and ideas and, and and the discourses of politics were separated from our economy over 200 years ago. And I think to bring them back together again is the first step. That our narratives, we, and Simon and I, when we first got together as social scientists, we were very um, keen on the notions of grounded theory. We did. We actually were two of the social scientists at the time. Actually, did some proper research. We went out into the world and and, and found out what was actually going on. Hmm. And our theory has always been grounded. Political economy must come back together. We need to become Polanyan in, in in that sense. And our politics must be economically grounded. It must be based on a, on some pristine knowledge of how modern fiat economies work and what we can do with them and we can build a political narrative and a political visions around what it, what is feasible be t- huge arguments about the, the the extent of feasibility what is feasible and what is not and that, there's the arguments we've got to win if, if simon wants to call it the leftist new project i, want, I might not well, i don't care we might end up calling it the left anyway because we're not very imaginative and we've, we can't think of any, any, any title but <clears throat> we have to bring the two t- together again and inflation was an example what's the scare story i'm sorry but machiavelli was right you know people do respond Fearfully, it is, you know, fear is a huge, you know, and there are there are um, artificial fears and there are organic natural fears. There are things we should be scared of. My daughter-in-law, Sunny Life, being the first the first one on, on our list. Yeah, and, and, and awful uh, things that might happen to us, global warming. From the Sunny Life to global warming, there's a whole uh, smorgasbord of, of fears that we shouldn't. Fear, fear is a good thing. It's anxiety that's the problem. I've, I've approached this in my work. Anxiety which without an object is the problem. Fear is quite healthy. You know, if there's something in the room that's threatening you, you need to uh, acknowledge it and get out of the way somehow. Yeah. And that's what we need to do. We need to, to grasp fear. Uh, we need to say, well, what should we be afraid of? How can we get out of this? What are the economics? And what's the what's the narrative around the economics? Uh, you know, and, 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 and bring the two back together again. And I think we need to do this through the education system. We need to have a revolution in economics departments. It's happening to some extent. Heterodox economics are breaking through. And I think that's... oh. Well, I thought of something positive. Yeah, there's another positive thing. Okay. Heterodoxy, it's not, brain it's not, compuls- it's not, it's not no. compulsory to end on a positive note, but if there is one that <laughs> emerges organically. No, that was an organic do. positive note. It came out of nowhere, but but, but it's true. I mean, uh, heterodox economics are making, uh, uh, getting foothold in, in economics departments and universities. And that's a very good thing. So there are some positive moves, and we are, you know, in some 
places we're making positive moves, but at the moment they're, they're overwhelmed by the, the negativity of these artificially induced cultural wars that we're going through, and uh, in the absence of uh, uh, of the, um, the the ideal of, uh, of solidarity. I was going to say that the first step is to stop hanging around in coffee shops, cloud of cynicism, <laughs> and camp, university campuses, and you know. And get involved in the lives of ordinary people because that's where the action is. And people road test ideologies, ideas, concepts, policies. How does it fit the world that I know and experience? And this is where you begin to push off in a different direction. Not in the Thompsonite way of listening to their gripes and disappearing off the university campus, but to actually try and explain their world, the processes they're experiencing, to help the kind of help them to understand why everything seems to be turning to shit. Why institutions that they relied upon for so years so many years are, are disappearing. So we we need to have we need to be ready with a stock of ideas that ordinary people can pick up and use. And they have to be better ideas and they have to be immediately at hand. And this is the problem we face because, of course, the pro- we've retreated and we've been out of the lives of the majority of the population for so long, whether or not those built bridges can have be rebuilt, whether we can remove ourselves from you know, our, our coddling institutions and actually go out into the streets and talk to ordinary people is, uh, you know, challenging i can't see it happening particularly yeah. quickly but that's certainly i think mm. the, the the direction we need to be heading in absolutely i think this sort of elevation of the platonic visionary has been mm. a big problem yeah someone has a set of ideas a vision and everyone else uh, has to follow it and if they don't then they're infidels you know they're they're they're, they're excommunicated there's a marxist carry on like this i'm sorry to say you know as an ex-marxist uh, some of mm. them do they used to anyway. I don't know what modern Marxists are like, to be honest. Well, uh, apart from yourselves, you know, as you seem like perfectly reasonable people to me, but there, but but there's there's something of a there's this closure of a, of a discourse. Now we shouldn't follow visionaries because they're all wrong. They're always wrong because they don't really, as Simon said, road test any of the ideas. Freud's notion of reality testing. We've got to mm. do stuff that has an impact straight away, which is what we did after World War Two. It has an immediate impact. The National Health Service had an immediate impact, and people said, "Oh, this is pretty good. Let's let's go down this road. Let's see what else they can do." Yeah. We've got to do stuff. I mean, we've got to work on how to do stuff and how to persuade people that stuff can be done. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, thanks so much, Stephen Simon, and um, yeah, hope hope to speak to you again on on the next the next project. What are you guys working on at the moment? Uh, after the, after the book with the with the free time that you may or may not have our freedom what we doing with our freedom I'll, to make us unfree yeah how mm. boundless time that I have between t- marking <laughs> essays and teaching classes and yeah we're, we're going to write a book about uh, social sciences it's called the dead disciplines it's about the inertia of uh, social science disciplines and its inability to come to terms with the problems of the world or take take us anywhere new. So it'll be more theoretical book. It'll have a little bit of Hegel in there, and uh, yeah, it's uh, nice about the the social sciences at this particular moment. Cool. Look forward to reading that. Um, well, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, yeah, speak to you again soon. Thanks. Thanks, George. Cheers.
Hello, welcome to the Bunga After Party. George, why don't you pull out some of the key themes you thought were the most important in that interview? Yeah, I mean, there was obviously a lot, a lot there, a lot about the history of the left and, you know, political economy and, and uh, money and, you know, a whole range of things. But I guess I wanted to, to, to hear what you guys thought about um, this idea of liberty, which comes through, I think, in two points in, in what we discussed. The first is essentially Stephen Simon attributing the left's fa- failure or death um, being mostly essentially self-imposed due to the turn to culture and liberty. Um, so, yeah, is that right? Do we kind of agree with that? And relatedly, should we or should we not, if we want to be left, if we want to be whatever, defend liberty as a value? Because I think the conclusion was quite, you know, from Steve particularly, was maybe quite anti-liberty. So, yeah, I just wanted to see what you guys thought of that and maybe dig a little bit deeper uh, there. Yeah, so I, I was... Yeah, go on, Alex. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I was intrigued by, I guess, this debate that emerged about, or that was implicit there, about what um, Thatcherism, uh, how Thatcherism won, what its big sell was. Um, and the the notion, of, I mean, I, I do think liberty was important there. And I guess here we will inevitably get into different conceptions of liberty. I thought what was most compelling um, in that, in I think, which was Simon, uh, what Simon put forward, which is that Thatcherism won uh, by selling the idea of not having to have responsibility anymore. Um, so it's a, an antisocial vision. Basically, you might have responsibility to yourself as maybe an entrepreneur, to the family, but not to community and to others. Um, and if that's true, then that Thatcherite conception with of liberty very much tallies with the contemporary left's. Uh, conception of liberty, which is basically, I don't need to be held accountable to anyone else. I don't need to explain myself to anyone else. My feelings are essential and what matters. Um, and we don't need any links which really ground us in any community. So for example, the enthusiasm for a universal basic income today is precisely part of that, where your connection is only to the state, which gives you some resources on which to live. And that's uh, the extent of your, um, you know, kind of socializing institutions, which you're bound up in. Yeah, I um, I mean, listening to Alex, I think I might have maybe even just changed our mind, uh, changed our mind, changed my mind. <laughs> um, speaking a bit, uh, speaking a bit out of turn there. Um, uh, it's a tricky one. I mean, I don't think you know the. Um, I think it was part of the Thatcherite pitch, and I think in many, you know, there was obviously the promise of consumer you know, a consumerist vision there that uh, was appealing and economic growth after stagflation. And certainly I think that was part of the appeal, but it was also married to a political vision. And there was the, um, you know, there was that kind of pitch of the entrepreneurial self. And I, you know, in the same, I mean, in as much as it had an appeal, you know, the same way that punk had an appeal. And I think, you know, punk, 80s punk was kind of part of that moment as well of the attempt to escape the dreary kind of post-war consensus, or at least where it had ended up under labor rule in the 1970s. That was certainly part of it. Um, I mean, the, you know, Thatcher, obviously with the, um, the Thatcher, the Thatcher governments with its, um, support for the war in Ireland and then later on the absurd kind of um you know the absurd crackdown on raves and so on it could hardly and not to mention obviously the minor strike it could hardly claim to stand as a champion of civil liberty in terms of concrete you know kind of its concrete political legislate legislation and what it did in office it could hardly claim to stand for political liberty but in terms of a political offer and a political pitch, what it made to the population at large, the opportunity to remake yourself was definitely part of it. So I think that 
You know, that's true. I don't think, I mean, and to that extent, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that there's, you know, the idea that people have to be cosseted to community. That doesn't seem to me to be, an, you know, something that's appealing. Now, it's true. What was really kind of the the subliminal part of what was an offer was obviously the flight from accountability, that you don't have to be accountable to anyone. And I agree with Alex that Thatcherism kind of laid the ground for um, the woke politics that has eventually, you know, that has emerged since. But I, you know, I, th- I think they, I think both Steve, um, Steve and Simon, I think they under, they underestimated the, the appeal and the pitch of Thatcherism. And I don't think, you know, if in so as much as working class voters bought into it, I don't, you know, I, I think it's understandable why they did, given the failures of the left. So the failure of the left wasn't that they didn't dig into community enough, but they failed to, you know, they failed to respond to Thatcherism. So the failure of the left was already the failure of the post-war consensus state that led to Thatcherism in the first place. And I think, I mean, this will be just the final point. I don't want to, you know, dig too deep on this, but in as much as the left, it's not that the left has opted for liberty, you know, I mean, that was proved, I think, by by lockdown. The left's broad support for lockdown shows a deep hostility to liberty. And indeed, you know, any kind of working, given the punishment that lockdown tended to inflict on poor and the poor and working class, um, anyone who supports, you know, anyone who... Um, you know, anyone, I think it should be visible to anybody, the need for the union of working class politics with civil liberty. But what the left really opted for was human rights, right? Which isn't, in fact, um, the traditional politics of liberty, which was understood as kind of being embedded as part of a essentially a national politics, a political system within the bounds of a nation. Um, whereas human rights was explicitly a supranational project. And it's that kind of vision of individual rights that the left opted for. And that is, I think, what Mm. took them far away from a politics of liberty. Yeah, it seems to me that, you know, the the question of who, of of whether we should advocate for liberty today is, I think it's a really important one. I kind of swing between two different positions. One that it's like this whole like Marxism is a philosophy of freedom and, you know, that's an easy sort of solution maybe. Maybe it's too easy. Um, but on the, on the other hand, there is, you know, recent events, particularly lockdowns, have suggested actually there is a massive political space for articulating pretty like uh, probably opposed to human rights more or less explicitly, but like um, a, a political program of of liberty. We live in a very authoritarian, although albeit without much authority, situation today. So I was kind of I was interested to hear Steve really take a quite a strong line. No, liberty's liberty's the problem. We need to look for other sources of, of meaning. And, and that's obviously, you know, that is one way to one way to approach it. But it seems to me that you've still got to stick up for the 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 basics um before you you kind of get onto the the whatever comes after the basics. The way Steve formulated the issue that it, you know, the um, there are large questions in, you know, which stem right back to the origins of politics itself with the ancient Greeks. You know, there are large kind of questions posed by um, what freedom might mean. And I think, you know, that's worth kind of that's worth underscoring. But I do think, you know, the kind of the contrast and conflict that both Steve and Simon wanted to set up between freedom 
and duty and responsibility, um, individual autonomy and community. I think you know those are questions that are at least theoretically and intellectually resolved um, in the politics that emerges in German idealism with Kant and Hegel. The reason that they, you know, that was that they're in conflict today isn't to do with the fact that, um, you know, that one is prioritized at the expense of the other, so much as the fact of um, global capitalism kind of forces them into tension. And so it isn't possible, it's not as if it's, I suppose my point is it's, you know, Steve kind of left it as an open ended theoretical question when it seems to me it's more a kind of a practical political question of resolving the tension it's not about a kind of theoretically open-ended search yeah i think i think that's absolutely absolutely correct and i mean um you know when i said about thatcherism one by not having responsibility um and not having kind of ties that that bind you um i don't mean to set that up as an opposition between um duty community um embeddedness and whatever versus um, a vision of liberty um or, or certainly, certainly not in contrast to kind of a, a greater, more positive vision of, of what liberty might be. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think what's interesting just in, in regards to um, the left's um, selling itself out to human rights, I think it's not merely um, a, just a supranational project, because even where um, there isn't an explicit appeal to kind of supranational bodies to guarantee human rights, the kind of human rights framework is, is brought kind of nationally, um, applies nationally, and a kind of whole um, ideological notion that the aim of politics is to try to preserve, um, you know, these basic human rights, uh, in which kind of the, the 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 deck can never be shuffled, right? There can never be any kind of um, changing of arrangements. What what is needed is just protection from the state, um, whether it's your own national state or some supranational body, um, and where you know there's kind of little. Um, capacity kind of to break free from that to a kind of greater form of liberty. So to the extent that someone's freedom might impinge um, on what is seen as basic rights, it's seen, you know, there needs to be a necessary appeal to the state to preserve those rights. And there's kind of a, a no, no politics there, right? There's no sense of um, actually taking state power. There's, an, there's just an expectation, um, a very naive expectation that the state will simply preserve these rights and, the, and based on um, the force of moral appeal. And that's and that's that. Um, and yeah, so or think, NATO, or NATO intervening and bombing, right? Or if it's, if it's somewhere else, but human rights matter at home too. I mean, there's always an appeal um, on the basis of human rights, kind of domestically in domestic politics as well. Yeah, but it's the politics. I mean, but your point, Alex, about you know, it's the it's eschewing state power. So I mean, the politics of right, you know, the politics of human rights is eschewing the idea of national power explicitly and instead seeking to kind of hem, in, hem it in and contain it with the politics of NGOs and supranational courts and appeal to international opinion, um, the United Nations, the European Union, and, you know, ultimately like, you know, NATO and US cruise missiles. So, I mean, the point is important, right? Because it's part of that. It is part of the, the left opting for a particular vision of, um, you know, legal supranational constitutionalism at the expense of mass democratic politics. Yeah. I mean, Alex is also right that that, that thing starts looking internationally and uh, sooner or later ends up probably at, at home. But anyway, I think we could talk about this for quite a while longer. The second thing that I wanted to get us onto, though, was the um, political economy. So I guess the, you know, the clearly the, the claim made by uh, Simon and Steve is that we should refocus or maybe just focus on political economy. Is this, is this, Correct? Should we 
you know, throw away all our philosophy books and pick up our Arigi, our Strake, our Journal of Political Economy? I don't know if um, picking up our Journal of Political Economy is um, is what it means to be okay. bringing political economy back. But no, I, I mean, I... question in a stylized way to provoke a response and discussion. Uh, you, got, you got a response. You got a response. Okay, so here, you know, this was... A f- this was awkward, I found, in terms of my, you know, I mean, throughout the discussion, I was kind of toggling back and forth quite quickly between, um, you know, strong support for what they were saying and strong disagreement. And I guess it's a sign of, um, it's a sign of a genuinely kind of important conversation. And that, you know, I mean, you know, that's true. So the thing with the political economy, you know, I don't disagree, but it, the way in which it was formulated in in Stephen Simon's response to you, George, was, you know, I mean, it was a bit, it was somewhat confused because on the one hand, Steve made the case, you know, we need to kind of um, recapture educational institutions, both at the level of schools and universities and, and hetero, heterodox economics is kind of making a comeback. It's finally cracking through the crust of all this orthodox economics. And then on the other hand, you know, they made the point about needing to kind of produce these populist kind of heuristics breaking through the household analogy as a model for um you know national yeah. level finance and that we need kind of models those kind of intuitive models of our own that people can reach to immediately and those things seem to me to be intention you know on the one hand the kind of go to the universities go to education line has been the line of the left for a long time and you know the long march of the institutions which led to nowhere except kind of woke hegemony And on the other hand, if you did want those kinds of intuitive, you know, those intuitive models that people could reach to that were better than the neoliberal household analogy, um, you know, that's politics. That's not really education. That is something which requires actual mass politics. And that then kind of immediately regresses to the question of political party, political representation for the left, which they didn't really talk about in their responses to you. So. It's not that I disagree with the idea of political economy being, you know, vital to the discussion. It's that the way in which they thought about it seemed to me to be caught on the, you know, caught on the horns of a dilemma. Yeah, fair, maybe. Yeah, Alex? I mean, yeah, I think to, to the extent that they push the, you know, the kind of we need to rethink economic education in a way um, is a way of repeating um, you know, the Thatcher, Thatcher's success, you know, it's kind of the Montpellier society again, over again. Um, so that there's a certain kind of indebtedness to, to, to Thatcherism and, and to its form of pursuing politics and pursuing a kind of, you know, radical paradigm change in, in economics. Um, well, and, and insofar, I guess, as, as Steve, well, I guess it was Steve specifically, you presented an economic vision. Obviously, there's the, you know, pushing MMT, which I think has its limits, but maybe we shouldn't go into this. I think George already mentioned in the interview, we've had um, episodes kind of pro and con um, on MMT, and I will include these in the show notes. Um, is that, you know, ultimately, he's kind of pushing for like kind of a mixed economy that there's still, you know, private supply for kind of petty consumption goods, um, and that Hayek was right about certain things, right? So um, there's a, there is, an, I guess, just an attempt to return to the mixed economy of the kind of post-war settlement. Um, I would say there's an extent, you know, maybe we should be careful what we wish for, because the economy in which the appeal to the market as ultimately sovereign at every instance, with no exceptions, um, is coming to an end. Uh, kind of geopolitical competition means that there is always a kind of, there will be always a security 
claim that um, become is more important than just the the kind of economic one. So that means that there's certain dirigism will is already coming back, and especially with the kind of decoupling um, and the deglobalization that's uh, ongoing, means that sort you know um, looking for kind of domestic suppliers as opposed to um, getting stuff abroad becomes um, much more present in, in in kind of running of the economy. Yeah. So I, I, I'm a little bit, you know, the, the idea that like the, um, pushing kind of a more interventionist state simply um, is the solution to kind of uh, Thatcherism or to neoliberalism. It's like, well, that's already happening and it might not happen in the way that you want it to, um, but that is what we're going to get by and large. And that, you know, to a certain extent there, there's a reflection of a, of a left um, al- kind of always tailing capitalism. Right. So um, the yeah. left pushes the left in the 60s and 70s pushes, you know, um, private desire and just go out and, and be able to consume your desires. And that's what it ends up getting in a, in a perverse form. And what if we're wishing here for more state intervention? And we get that, but in ways which are not um, in the interest of the working class at all. It's the point I was going to you know, say, I mean, when they talk about they take the breakthrough of heterodox economics as a welcome sign, I wouldn't be so quick to, you know, to to rush in. Um, or at least I would ask the question of what is that symptomatic of? You know, the very fact that heterodox economics and heterodox economists are making more headway should tell you that there is something shifting in the existing consensus. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the empowerment of um, the kind of vision, perhaps, um, you know, that that they would support. So, you know, I think it's worth, mm-hmm. yeah, it's worth restating that. Great. So, yeah, just um, final thing that I just wanted, I guess, to raise a little bit was that they talk mainly about the UK, a little bit about the US. Um, is is Are we at risk of being too Anglo-centric? I don't know if this is a question just for, for Alex, because um, Phil probably doesn't know what Anglo-centrism is. You know, fish can't see the water or whatever. But that's actually a bit unfair given the international <laughs> relations guy. Maybe that's me, actually. I'm, I'm owning myself to say... Um, to say that really but yeah I mean would if we had a look at the the kind of the death of the left in Germany France elsewhere do you get the same picture do you get a kind of a different narrative does it support what they're saying or does it undermine it I yeah I mean one thing that actually did strike me is the nostalgia expressed both by um, Stephen Simon but even more so in relating their experience talking to the British working class, members of the British working class, which is this nostalgia for social democracy and for a a social democracy that was brought in by the left. Now, it's important that in a lot of continental Europe, it was Christian democracy, was the centre-right, who uh, played the largest role in implementing kind of social democratic structures with, you know, kind of socialized industries, nationalized industries rather, and, um, you know, kind of socialized medicine and, and all the rest of it, right? So um, that nostalgia, both for a left and for a kind of social democratic arrangement um, is very, very strong in Britain. I think there's a kind of a symbolic importance that these things have, like the NHS has it most of all, which are not so present yeah. in, in other European countries. And so, you know, I, I thought where that came out most strongly was, I think, Simon saying um, that, you know, like, go out and talk to people, go out and, and you'll and, you know, you need to explain to them why everything is so shit today, you know, and actually give some proper explanations for that. Now, I think that's completely like legitimate and, and correct. But there's a particularly British approach there and saying, why is everything so shit when it used to be, you know, when it used to be so good? And 
I'm sure that nostalgia exists across um, across Europe, maybe actually less so in the US, right? Um, let alone elsewhere where you didn't have, you know, you didn't really have the kind of glory years in the in the same way. I'm just not true that I'm just not sure that's true, Alex. I mean, that was the whole basis of Trump's um, inauguration speech. You know, the line from uh, Steve Bannon about the great kind of rusting hulks of factories that have been sold out to NAFTA. So, I mean, that kind of nostalgia for the post-war era resonates in the U.S. as well. No, for sure. I mean, for sure. I mean, I, sorry, I, I guess I should be specific. And, and you're right to, to um, pull me up on that. It's nostalgia for a left also, which which implemented this. You know, I think that's what's important. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, you might be right about, you know, Christian democratic governments in Europe kind of being the ones that legislated in practice and on the European continent, at least. Um, but, you know, they did that with a permissive consensus in which the left figured, importantly, um, as both with this, both with socialist parties and communist parties that opted in to, um, you know, to those arrangements uh, to a greater or lesser degree. So you know, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you're right to kind of um, to caveat the claim, but, I, you know, it's, it's not as if the left didn't have a hand in creating that. And I think the nostalgia, like you say, I think it is real. So I don't, um, at least, you know, on the basis of what I see and read and observe, it seems to me that even if it's inflected in different ways and different contexts, um, a lot of the populist insurgency that we see, um, you know, kind of roiling European politics, it's, it's partly driven by older voters, but not just by older voters. It's also kind of a folk memory in the Rust Belt areas or Rust Belt equivalents of European states, um, mm. including in Eastern Europe, where there are folk memories yeah. of different times and that this is kind of what is being mobilized predominantly by, you know, by populist politicians. So so just wait, just a little ironic anecdote, um, which kind of, I guess, proves your point to a certain degree. Um, in like, I've even seen memes in Brazil, which are like, "Oh, remember back when we used to be own a house, whereas now, you know, millennials can't afford a home, whatever." Right? Like that <laughs> that period of kind of glory years, social democracy, etc., never existed in Brazil. It's like a complete false memory, um, which which like doesn't apply doesn't doesn't apply to the kind of younger people who actually were sharing that. But it also doesn't apply even if it would, even if they were older because it's it's something that actually never existed. So to a certain extent, this yeah, trope of like the, the good old days, um, you know, permeates kind of kind of crosses boundaries, cross, crosses borders, even to places where it never applied. Um, the I think there's something there's yeah. something weird there. I guess it yeah. what that tells you the is the good to old days extent. of the military dictatorship. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly, and these are people supposedly on the left sharing it, right? Um, and or you know certainly kind of incline more to the left certainly than to the right um I, what it maybe it tells you is that you know kind of nostalgia is the default form of politics when when there is no real alternative yeah and mm. i get and i'm sure that's i mean you know it's no surprise that it's the populists that kind of tap that and that it's um you know that there are i'm sure there's kind of um you know traps there for the left um but yeah, all that no, said I, I mean yeah go mm. on george no i, I think um yeah, they, it seems like there aren't to have like a counter example, like looking elsewhere in the world for like here's where the left is is not dead and didn't embrace neoliberalism and now is uh, is is good. It's is sort of a a bit of a pastime for for some, but it seems like a pretty tricky search. And you often come up with some surprising candidates for this, but in the kind of the desire to to, to come up with something which seems to go counter to the like. Western European and American narrative where, yeah, the left has, has on its own terms, um, you know, 
died or failed or whatever. So, yeah, I think there's, you know, that was just my thought sort of in asking that question. Is there anything that I'd miss from from that? But I think it's, you know, it seems to me like the, the basic story would would change in different contexts. You don't didn't have a Thatcher in every, every country in the world, but you had that that movement being fairly global. But the, the basic outlines, even if the, the people are different, would be broadly the same throughout the world, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it is, but it, I mean, I suppose where you could kind of raise it, I mean, if you, you know, the fact that the um, China is run by a political party that still kind of claims direct, claims to be a direct descendant and inheritor of um, the October Revolution in Russia. So it still claims that legacy. And it is also overseen, you know, the greatest economic expansion, at least in quantitative terms, you know, in human history. Um, You know, those are significant questions for the left. Um, That is still something which belongs to a kind of historiography and a political account of the left over the 20th century. So it's not just, you know, it's not something which is simply about, if we're talking about the left, it's not simply kind of the decline of social democracy in the West, but a broader, it is still genuinely a global question. Mm. Yeah, good point. And and the left elsewhere might have problems which are no less grave, but which are slightly different. Um, So it's not just that they've been completely culturalized, but that they're maybe still important kind of Stalinist thread within within the kind of organized left there which is you know it bears with it its own problems but they're slightly different to um to the ones described in the kind of anglo-american world yeah no very much so i think that point that you're making there phil about the the death of the left both being <clears throat> social democracy across europe and i guess something a bit a bit wider a bit grander um you know in across Russia, China, elsewhere, elsewhere. Um, yeah, isn't something which obviously is, is the focus of the book, but isn't, you know, just the, the left's dead, the left's cousins or like the, the extended family, also not not in the greatest um, of health at the moment. But no, I thought it was a really good chat and thanks to Stephen and Simon for coming on. All right, I'm sure this will provoke lots of uh, responses from you patrons, so do let, me, let us know what you think. Um, we're going to have an alpha bonus bonus coming out um, pretty soon, um, picking up on the comments on this episode and many others over the past uh, month and a half or so so we look forward to to reading all those to commenting on those um, and to hear what you thought that's it for now catch you later bye-bye